Okay, welcome to this interview today in our episode uh, on becoming a post-growth planner. Second episode today with uh, Benjamin Davy. And my name is Christian Lamke. I'm assistant professor of her sustainable transformation and regional planning at the University of Groningen in the Netherlands. Yeah, hi, I'm Viola Schulz-Diekhoff. I'm working at TU Dortmund University at the Faculty of um, Spatial Planning. Um, yeah, our focus mainly on transformative practices and actions. Um, I'm part of the collective of post-growth planning, and this is our session, which is part of this collective. Hi, and I'm Ben Davy. I uh, was a professor of land policy, land management, and uh, municipal surveying at the uh, Technische Universität Dortmund, the School of Spatial Planning there. Uh, and I'm now a visiting professor to the Faculty of Law of the University of Johannesburg, although due to COVID-19, I know I shouldn't have mentioned it, uh, due to COVID-19 online, mostly. Okay, thank you. So let's start with a very tricky question. So just in general, maybe not now, as many planners will do, they work a bit differently maybe today than the last years and decades. But how would you describe a typical planner today? So as an individual, who is this the typical planner? I would say that uh, planning uh, is one of the disciplines that uh, does not have a clear cut profile and uh, graduates from planning schools can work in very many fields. They can work with physical planning, they can work with transportation planning, they can work in real estate, they can work with municipal governments or regional governments, uh, but uh, also with businesses. So in that sense, I do not believe that anybody is a typical planner. Uh, if I would try to express in a concise way what I expect from planners, uh, I would emphasize the ability to think laterally uh, and to be able to use knowledge from several disciplines. So that's what the minimum of interdisciplinarity constitutes. I would expect them to be curious about very complex situations and not frightened uh, in the face of complexity. And probably I would expect uh, a typical planner to be interested in coordinating situations where there are a lot of conflicts and, and uh, conflicting interests. What would you say, like we, we talk about post-growth planning, you say there is not this one typical planner. So it's, it's hard to think about how to change planning thought and how to think in new directions. Why is it so important to understand what still hinders planners to think towards a post-growth direction? I guess I would have responded to that question uh, very differently uh, in September, October 2019. In September, October 2020, uh, I would emphasize that we have just over the past months uh, watched how quickly everything can change. Uh, 
2019 and earlier, uh, everyone who wanted to discuss post-growth planning heard possibly the argument, oh, this is not possible, this is politically difficult, we cannot change everything, people will not, uh, will not follow that, that line of thinking. Uh, and then uh, came the coronavirus uh, and everything changed. Suddenly there was no uh, air traffic, cars stopped, factories were closed, people were starting to work from home, um, children uh, were not allowed to go to the uh, kita any longer or to school and uh, had to learn in, at, at home. And, and there were so, so billions, billions of euros or dollars were raised for all sorts of packages. If, if you think about how difficult it is or was to finance climate change policies or to fight world hunger, much more people die from hunger around the world than from COVID-19. And it's impossible to solve that problem, to muster the funds necessary to fight world hunger. But it was necessary, it was possible uh, to muster the uh, funding and, and finance uh, for COVID-19 measures, for these uh, packages, uh, for uh, Kurzarbeit, uh, I don't know what, 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 what that is in English. And this is something that uh, post-growth planners should think very, very hard about. What, why, what is it that makes COVID-19 different from world hunger or malaria? Uh, and how this understanding can be used to promote post-growth post planning? You probably have thought about this question already. <laughs> so if I ask you to go a little further, of course, that's not like scientifically proven what you probably will continue about now. But what do you think is different? Because it's a very like, it's probably also a very tricky question because of yeah, stating and a question that is very closely connected to values as well? Yes, it, it is. I, I believe the difference between world hunger and uh, the coronavirus is that everybody knows how it is to feel hungry and what to do against it. If you are hungry, you have to eat. But in March 2020, nobody knew about COVID-19. You, you didn't know if you, if you touch a door handle, will you get sick in the next moment? Or if you go to a restaurant, or if you walk, if you walk and there's somebody else walking 100 meters from you, is that dangerous or not? It took us several months to learn how to behave in the face of COVID-19. And during that time, I think there was a huge amount of solidarity and reason, reasonableness uh, because people were afraid. They were afraid in the face of huge uncertainty. It, things were different in different countries. So in India, it was different from Texas. And in South Africa, it was different from Israel. And in Germany, it was different from the Netherlands. But 
one thing people shared was this enormous amount of uncertainty with regard to world hunger or to climate change. People do not fear in the face of uncertainty. There are people who are afraid of climate change, but many people are not. Now that we have learned more about the virus, uh, people get restless. They stop wearing face coverings. They stop distancing. They go to mar marriage celebrations and they let their kids play with infected people. And then maybe they are surprised if they learn that, oh, there was an infected person present. But basically, people have started again to take a lot of risks. And I think that is something um, planners should, by the growth or po post-growth planners should really think very hard about how to deal with these uh, very uh, difficult balancings, the balancing of uncertainty and fear of knowledge and risk-taking behavior. Of course, nobody wants to stop living. But what we have learned over these past months is that living differently is possible. Mm -hmm. But I think what we also learned um, is that in the face of this complexity and insecureness and angst, it was not the individual that acted. It was like enclaves or groups that got together, like in, in houses or it was not, um, or that's what I think happened. It, it was more like maybe also what we discussed a lot in, 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 in planning as well to like what's natural resource management can look like as well. And like to come to Eleanor Ostrom and always look at groups. But I think this uh, crisis also showed it's not the individual, individual being, it's more like the yeah, groups that actually got back together and got into a group and tried to act and help each other as a, as a group. But also this has multiple other uh, challenges as well. So maybe if, yeah, if we look at planning, <laughs> This can go uh, towards a very interesting, but also, again, challenging question. And, um, yeah, you worked a lot on these questions, like um, polyrationality, etc. So if we go further, what inspiration do you think does your work offer for planning practitioners or planning um, researchers uh, to go towards a growth-independent planning? I'm not sure that uh, my work really adds to, to that uh, because it is or has been mostly analytical. I was thinking about the question and I've noticed uh, that over the years there was one accusation that students had uh, for me uh, that, that, that really went under my skin. Students accused me of being a philosopher. They said, we are an engineering school. Uh, why all this philosophy? Why, why do you make us think about social contract theory and Hobbes and Locke and Rousseau? Uh, how does that relate to, to, to planning? And uh, I would say that uh, for the remaining time I have in life, I would, I would like to think even 
more about planning and philosophy. I, I think that uh, things like truth or values are greatly underestimated uh, in planning practice. Um, planners talk about evidence-based planning, but they have very little theories uh, how to produce um, correct uh, conclusions uh, from premises. Uh, evidence-based planning very often means you have to hammer on an idea that your uh, mayor or your minister once promoted and, and, and then you, you, you can go through with it after you have uh, removed all uh, other arguments. But I'm, I'm not convinced that this is the best way uh, to go about planning. Uh, loving truth. Uh, that's what philosophy really means. Loving truth is something that's particularly important in a time where truthfulness is so disregarded in, in politics and in public life. And uh, I believe that thinking about values like human dignity or justice or solidarity uh, would add very much to the planning project. So what you say today is kind of a really good point to take that window, window of opportunity to talk more about individual dignity, about solidarity, and to take that a step forward that maybe make even students more attracted to philosophical thinking. Yeah, I, I think that what we have just uh, seen is an enormous uh, effort to promote human dignity by avoiding uh, what philosophers call the trolley problem. Uh, the, the trolley problem uh, would have arisen to public health, to the health system, if doctors would have been forced to decide who is going to live and who is going to die. Uh, in North Italy and in Spain, there were situations where doctors had to make these decisions and guidelines were issued. Uh, saying that uh, doctors should take a utilitarian view and look at uh, not only saved lives, but saved lives times expectancy. So younger people would have been preferred for ventilation over uh, senior citizens. And that is, of course, a huge violation of human dignity. Uh, every life values the same. Human life is not different from, from another human life. You cannot uh, measure or weigh uh, 20 lives against one life or a young life against uh, a mature life. So th th this is impossible from the perspective of human dignity. And what's ha what has happened with these lockdowns, although nobody really framed it with these terms, but what has happened with these lockdowns and social distancing measures, and other measures was that uh, the, the, the health system in many countries, like Germany, uh, was by and large protected from having to make this decision, who will live and who is going to die. And that, in my view, is an enormous effort to promote, protect and respect human dignity even at the expense uh, and the cost that this definitely um, caused.
So uh, do you also see a positive force of motivating people for thinking beyond economic factors, getting to a different philosophical point of view maybe? So in that sense, there was an immediate fear, uh, but we do not want to work towards post-growth planning based on an immediate fear. But there's, is there a way to turn that also to use positive motivation um, to find a positive vision, vision and then also to change uh, maybe more dramatically what we do and how we plan? I thank you for that question, but I would not make this, um, I wouldn't think of economics as opposed to planning. I, I rather believe that economics should be part of planning and should not be a, an enemy, something that planners always oppose. And it often looks like that, no doubt about it. Uh, but but uh, should help uh, businesses and companies uh, to run and operate their businesses in a way that it is conducive to the environment, that it is conducive to save uh, labor, that, that, uh, that they pay fair salaries uh, and are able to do so. And I do not believe that uh, the economy is the... Um, enemy uh, of the people, but rather uh, it's part of society, it's part of social life, it's part of, of how, how, how we are living. Fetishizing growth, to turn growth into a fetish. Fetishizing growth, that is a huge problem. And I believe that uh, everyone should contribute to making everybody else understand that growth, economic growth, must not be a fetish. But I would rather look at uh, the quality of growth than the quantity. So usually the indices for uh, economic growth are just numbers and they should be qualities. The question is, what, what, what are the capabilities that are promoted through the econom economic activities of companies and, and workers? So what, what do what you think, how, how, what kind of tools or um, yeah, need planners to go into a dialogue or do you need um, more rules or yeah, stricter rules, different rules, different tools, different formats to go into this dialogue with the economy. Because so far, yeah, what we got, got to do, or like people tell us, it's mainly not like this. It's, it's either a lobbyist or someone who comes into a city who says, all right, I'm, I would like to have this piece of land. And it's pretty much the red carpet being rolled out because he brings certain positive effects. So what could be um, a moment or do you, can, can you think of an, a moment where there could be a different, different dialogue, different understanding? Actually, uh, we, we had these moments uh, quite a bit over the past, let's say, two decades. Um, there was 9-11. Uh, there was the uh, financial and housing crisis that started in 2007 in California and spread all over the world. 
uh, and still affects countries like Greece very much. Uh, and now there is the coronavirus. Um, I think that if you look back to 9-11 and if you look back to the uh, financial crisis, it becomes quite clear um, that we le learned very, very little uh, from, from these crises. So the, uh, the, the, in, in a way, the uh, packages uh, in, during the financial crisis uh, reaffirmed unsustain, unsustainable economic decision-making. Uh, companies were rewarded uh, for using unsafe financial methods by uh, helping them uh, to avoid uh, um, insolvent. Uh, yeah. And that, I think, uh, does, not, does not make me very uh, hopeful what, what will come out of the COVID-19 crisis. But on the other hand, I was thinking about Friedrich Merz this, this morning. Uh, Friedrich Merz is a conservative politician who wants to be the next Bundeskanzler in, in, in Germany. And he chastised um, society for get, falling out uh, of use with labor. Uh, this, this unlearning uh, how to work. And I thought if a conservative uh, politician like Friedrich Merz uh, thinks it's necessary to warn his clients that, that this is happening, that people are actually learning that the way labor was organized until March 2020 was maybe unsustainable. Uh, th then there must be something to it. Probably he sees that people are changing and that people have been experiencing that working from home can be a very, very positive thing and is possible. And of course, combined with homeschooling, this is very, very difficult and a big burden for, for parents. But uh, there are many ways how that could be organized and it's even possible, I think, to make it easier for parents to work when they have an opportunity and are allowed to organize working from home. And until 2020, home office was uh, not practiced very often in, in Germany. And now it is uh, ubiquitous. Yeah, so many, many things actually changed very quickly in the last few months. Um, but getting back a bit to post-growth planning, post-growth thinking, do you have a specific advice for planners today, today to now take the courage to use more of that post-growth post thinking to maybe find the small parts to change how they plan um, or to position themselves a bit away from growth fetish towards sensible use of economic ideas? I, I think my, my advice would be to unlearn. And by that, I mean 
if you look, for example, at German planning law, German planning law uh, presupposes that everybody is, is greatly interested in economic growth. And all the instruments in uh, German planning law uh, point in the direction of economic growth. And I think that we have to unlearn that and ask ourselves how would a world look that is not only focused on economic growth. Economic growth may be part of the world we envision, uh, but it should not be everything. That's what, what I meant by fetishizing uh, economic growth. It, it should not always only be about jobs and how to um, create opportunities uh, for economic profits. Uh, it should be about uh, creating spaces worthy of human beings and respectful of human dignity. It should be about um, a just distribution of benefits and burdens. And it should be about opportunities, opportunities for self-realization, opportunities for learning, opportunities um, for reaching out to others. Uh, and that, of course, makes necessary that there is time and space for reaching out to others. Uh, many of us rush through life uh, and have little time for their families or for friends uh, or for uh, getting to know uh, people they haven't met before. Um, and and th this is something that is sort of built in into the growth machine of today's world. And uh, maybe uh, this is something that uh, can be unlearned. Do you have an advice where to start in particular? So uh, is there a specific part where you think this is where planners should start? Or do you have a certain book or video or website in mind that helps? Uh, apart from your work, uh, and uh, projects, I, I would say uh, everybody has to start with herself or himself. Okay, thank you. So um, we are getting towards the end, but I will not end before uh, we ask you to finish a short sentence that is post-growth planning is. Thinking about quality, not quantity. Thank you. You're welcome. Very short final statement. Uh, many thanks from my side and also from Viola. Thank you very much, Ben. You're welcome. Very inspiring. Thank you. And let's, <laughs> let's continue exploring, inspiring, and yes. finding this, I, I way, this way to unlearn. Christian and Viola, what, what I said, that was not an empty compliment. I, I really very much admire what you're doing and that you have uh, keep doing it, although uh, life is rather difficult uh, these days. I think that's great. So please carry on and uh, good luck with that. Thank you very much. Thank you.